0: We'll continue to worship the Lord through our time in his word. Uh, We believe that we sing and we give and we pray and we communicate to God and engage with him. And we also believe that God is not a silent God. Uh, As Kelly reminded us, he has left us his word. And to the degree that his word is read and faithfully proclaimed, to that degree, God himself is speaking to us. And so... I pray that as God speaks now, that he would have our hearts and our attention. We're in Mark chapter 13, and I know there is uh, some debate around how to interpret the passage, but um, I'm going for uh, working through this lens that God's word is rich, it's deep, Not everything is equally understandable, but everything that we need for life and godliness is found here. And so uh, just to give you an overarching theme, um, I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is reminding them that the temple is passing away. And then he's using that same temple that's passing away as a springboard to say not only is that temple passing away, but all time and space as you know it is passing away. And it will pass away when we see Jesus returning on the cloud and he sends his angels to gather his elect out of the land and we will not endure God's judgment. And so the temple is being used to both uh, confirm that it's passing away, but it's a springboard that it's not just a temple. All things will soon pass away. This is God's word. When will these things, or when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But you be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he, notice that that, that it's a he, ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And the last, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, namely after the fall of the temple, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect From the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, alas, when you see these things taking place, you know that he, again, it's a he, is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and he find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen, let's pray. Dear Lord, we turn our hearts to your word and we do ask your blessing upon it. Father, we pray above all things that we would see Jesus as beautiful, as precious, That we would see your unfolding plan of redemption as real and near. And that above all things, that we would be found as your people, either at our death or at your return, as those who lived awakened lives. So help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a week ago, uh, which is my practice on Sunday evenings, I tend to take a nap and I would lay on the couch and um, just rest. And my watch kept going off. It was like, and I finally checked my watch. And it was news that Kobe Bryant and his 13 year old daughter Gigi and seven other people had just uh, died tragically in a helicopter crash. And to be really honest, I I thought it was a dream. The night before, LeBron James had just passed him on the all-time scoring list, and Kobe sent a tweet to LeBron congratulating him, not knowing that that would be the last tweet that he sent. And it was hard, right? It was hard to kind of process that. I mean, I've heard rumors that They found the remains, and it looks like uh, he died with his own daughter uh, wrapped in his own arms. I don't know how true it is, uh, but that's what's out there right now. But it was sad. It It was jarring. And you don't have to like Kobe. You don't have to like the NBA. You don't have to like basketball to just be moved by that incident. You don't have to know why he wore two different jerseys. You don't have to appreciate the number of rings he won. You don't have to appreciate the fact that he's played all of his professional career with the same team. You don't have to appreciate the fact that he didn't go to college. He went straight from high school to the NBA. You don't have to appreciate any of that to know that that was jarring. It was kind of hard to process. Uh, in my mind, I, I envisioned him living to be like, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, old Laker favorites. You see him on the sideline. In my mind, right? And and maybe it hurt because he was 41. I'm 41. His daughter was 13. My daughter's 13. It just kind of hit differently, right? But why? In addition to the sadness and the tragedy of it, I think it just caught us off guard. It just caught us off guard that an icon could be gone just like that. And I think the reason it jars us in addition to the pain and the sorrow, it's because I think as much as we read the Bible, as much as we know our days are numbered, as much as we know that life is a vapor, as much as we know that no one can add a millisecond to his life, as much as we know that life is fleeting, it's really easy to kind of forget that. And C.S. Lewis, he, he phrases this like no other in his book, The Screwtape Letters, And and you gotta understand the perspective of the book. It's written from the perspective of Satan and demons. And so when you hear the word enemy in screw tape letters, the enemy is actually God. And C.S. Lewis, in that book, he's writing about how humans fall asleep. He says, The humans live in time, but our enemy, God, destines them to eternity. He wants them to be consumed with two things, eternity itself and their present lives. He would have them continually concerned with eternity, where they stand with him. And our business is to get them away from contemplating the eternal, to get them away from contemplating how their present lives are being shaped by it. Lull them to sleep, distract them, flood their minds with the past, flood their minds with the near future. We want a whole race of people perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, make them presume upon tomorrow, hide eternity from them, hide their mortality from them. Once we do that, we have them. That one of the things that Satan does is it blinds us to our mortality, he blinds us to how life is a vapor. He blinds us to how we're one step here and we're one step into eternity. We're blinded by it. And so we're surprised when we see what we see and hear what we hear. And you know, we're a lot like the disciples that we bought into these illusions of permanence. And it's an illusion that everything you see is passing away. That every person you're talking to is passing away. That those jobs you go to every day, it's passing away. And one of the things that that Satan does is he blinds us to that. And Jesus is a good Savior. He says, I will not let my people stay blinded. And the disciples are like us. And so the first thing I want us to see in this passage is Just that—it's the illusion of permanence. It's an illusion, right? We look out there and we see things and we see people, and we—and it's an illusion. In our heart of hearts, we kind of assume that what has been today will be tomorrow. We assume, and they're no different. Now you see it. How the passage begins? Notice that as, as as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher." What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Now, notice the wordplay. They see the temple and the temple mount. And they see the city of Jerusalem. And they say, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And Jesus says, I know what you're really saying. You're really saying it's great. Now, that's important because what they're looking at is the temple mount. And it's not just the temple you got to go back to Herod the Great. His ambition was to build a wonder of the world. And what he wanted to do was to leave his indelible mark upon the landscape of Jerusalem so that everyone, even us right here, right now, will be talking about what he built. Now, the Temple Mount, not just the temple, but everything, it occupied one sixth of Jerusalem. Think about that. One sixth of the entire city was his building project. He brought the best engineers from Egypt, from Greece, from Rome. We know he spent at least 10 years building it. And depending on how you interpret John chapter two, it could be 46 years. It could be that he spent 10 years building it, and every year there was more adding, more adding, more adding, more adding. That the stones were 45 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide. It was unprecedented in his day. It was a modern marvel of the world, so much so that the rabbis who didn't even like Herod, You want to know what they said about Jerusalem that Herod built and the temple that Herod built? They actually said, and it's written, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. The temple is a mountain of white stone decorated with gold and dominates the Kidron Valley. It's an object of dazzling beauty. In layman's terms, they didn't like Herod, but they loved Herod's building. It was great. Big stones. Permanence. Beauty. Jesus look. Look how beautiful it is. It's here, and it will always be here. It's strength there. I'd imagine that it's a lot like Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It's an icon of the city. Or maybe it's like the Trade Center in New York City before 9-11. It's an icon. It symbolizes strength. And I don't think it's just buildings. Because I think that's what Jesus is attacking, right? You see the building. But I think our present prosperity, doesn't that make us presume that we're untouchable? I got enough money. I'm in a gated community. And I'm safe. Yeah, maybe for a little while. We look at bank accounts and we hear safety. What about our health? We presume that because I can run a marathon today that I'm going to live until, I went to a funeral yesterday, childhood friend's grandmother lived to be 100 and almost three. Then we kind of assume a 41-year-old athlete does not die on a helicopter. We presume upon time because things were one way today, that, that it'll be that way tomorrow. And what Jesus is saying is, tap the brakes. It's not true. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. And the second thing we see in the passage is, they have bought into the illusion of permanence through the temple. And Jesus says, no. The temple and all things, for that matter, will certainly pass away. So he is sort of popping their bubble. They're kind of in this dream that this great and big and beautiful temple will always be here. And Jesus says, no, it won't be. And you see it right there. He says, do you see these great buildings? I'm telling you, there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is saying, I know you're fixed on the temple. I know it looks permanent. But I'm telling you, when we're done with this, it won't be there anymore. Now, four of the disciples asked Jesus, well, what's the sign? How do we know, Jesus? How do we know when this will happen? And Jesus says, OK, I'll give you some signs. I think the great majority of this passage is about the destruction of the temple. And I think verses 24 through 27 and 32 through 37, Jesus is talking about the end of time. And So I think the great majority is about the temple and it passing away. And so Jesus uses the language of labor pain. Now, think about it. There's conception, then the woman is carrying the child. And it's not instant. She doesn't have the child instantaneously. There's a season of carrying, a season of waiting. And then the closer you get to birth, you have birth pains and contractions. And then there's birth. That's the language Jesus uses with respect to the temple passing away. It's going to be like a woman in carrying a child. It won't happen overnight. It'll be some time. And then she'll give birth. And then when time is up, the temple will be destroyed. Now, what are the birth pains, right? The first one is the labor pains will be false prophets. Jesus is telling the disciples that that you'll know that the temple will soon be destroyed when you see false prophets going out. Just know when you see false prophet, just know that I have associated the destruction of the temple with false prophets who go out. And that's exactly what Paul wrote. He says some people preach Christ uh, with with bad intentions. He says, I don't really care as long as Christ is preached, but they're not real preachers. John writes that many antichrists have gone away from us, but they never were in us. And so now you're getting Paul and John who are testifying to this reality that, hey, false prophets are going out. And if you were sitting there with Jesus, the moment you hear false prophets going out, we're supposed to have in the back of our minds. Oh, he linked the false prophets with the temple that's going to be destroyed someday. So that's a birth pain, according to Jesus. He says, you'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famine would happen in various places. And the years following Jesus's death, they were tumultuous. The Jews wanted their independence and they got it for a season. And then you had the changing of the guard in Rome where they had different emperors who were betraying one another to be on the throne. And then we actually have a Roman historian named Tacitus who tells us that in Laodicea and Pompeii in the 60s, there were earthquakes. And so if you were a disciple and you're watching the tumult tumult of nations and you're reading about earthquakes, you know what you were supposed to think? Ah, Jesus says that when we hear these things and see these things, It's an indicator that the temple will soon be destroyed. And then you have what you have in verses 14 through 23. And when you see the abomination of desolation, and notice it says standing where he ought not be. Let the reader understand. The abomination of desolation is a term that comes from Daniel. Daniel saw an abomination of desolation. He prophesied it. And we think that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled 160 years before Jesus when Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled Palestine from 175 to 164 BC, he treated Israel with so much contempt that they revolted. And it's where we get the Maccabean revolt. And the way that he put their revolt To sleep was by coming to Jerusalem and killing and destroying them and then tearing up the temple and then going into the temple, into the holy of holies and setting up an altar for Zeus and then offering pigs, the unclean animal in the holies of holies. Daniel saw that. He says that's the abomination of desolation. It is this epic portion of sacrilege. Right. And then Jesus 190 years after that abomination of desolation, he says there's going to be another one. That temple is going to be desecrated again because someone, a he, is going to go in there and do something sacrilegious. And who was that? It was Titus that after the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD, the Jews had temporary freedom. But during the Passover of AD 70, think about this. When Jesus utters these words, it's the Passover of AD 30. 40 years later, exactly 40 years later to the day, maybe the day, definitely the week, They had been free for four years, not under Roman authority. And then this new emperor comes to Jerusalem. He says, you will be our servants. And what does he do? He marches right into the temple. That gold is mine. That silver is mine. You will not worship the Lord your God anymore. Burn it down, tear it up. And guess what happened? In A.D. 70, that temple came a tumbling down. And you want to know what's there today? The Dome of the Rock, where Muslims go and worship in Jerusalem. And you think Jesus planned? This don't surprise him. He said, didn't I tell you the temple built by men is not going to stand and it still is not there today and it will never be rebuilt because we don't need it. There was judgment being poured out and so when you skip down to verses 28 through 31 and he gives you the lesson of the fig tree please associate that lesson not with the verses right before it but with the verses before those in other words there is a he a person who will stand where he should not stand and notice where it says where he ought not be And then notice in verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Who is the he? That he is not Jesus, that he is the person who's going to stand in the in the temple. And Jesus says, when he comes, it will be tumultuous, something never seen before. Now, how do we know that most of this is about that? Look how localized it is in verse 15. No, 14. Let those who are where? In Judea flee to the mountains. So the real mountains around Judea. And let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, pray that it may not happen in the winter, not because it's cold, but because that's the rainy season in, in, in Jesus' day in Jerusalem. Pray that it's not raining outside. And so, what Jesus is saying hey, when he comes and the temple is about to fall, Wherever you are, don't go back to the city. You need to flee. You need to flee to the hills. And we know from Josephus 1.1 million Jews died in AD 70 when he came. You know why they died that many? Because it was Passover. And if you were a Jew, you came to Jerusalem. Another 100,000 were taken to be slaves the church father Eusebius said that there were two cities that those Jews in AD 70 were those who could make it out that's where they fled to and what we see in the passage is if God did not put a limit on what happened in AD 70 there would be no church because the few Disciples that were there, they would have been killed. But for the sake of the elect, both those living then and those of us now whose life God had hidden in Christ, God put a limit on it so that this thing did not stamp out the early church. And the temple is gone. It's passed away. But Jesus doesn't say that the only thing passing away in this passage is a temple. I love the headings in our Bibles, and sometimes I don't. They're not in the Bible, like they're not in the original manuscript. So just, they're put there by editors, and a lot of them are really good. But look at verse 31. I think this is crucial. What does Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away. Not only is the temple going to pass away, it's a springboard. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. That's an idiom that Jesus is using to say time as you know it and life as you know it will be passing away just like that temple is passing away. And notice what Jesus says. Look at right there in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, which tribulation is he talking about? He's talking about the passing away of the temple. In those days, after the temple has passed away, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven in the heavens will be shaking. What is he talking about? I don't know. I got some ideas. I think what he's saying, the temple is now gone and there's a new age that's dawning. It's the age of the church. It's the age of God's word and God's covenant faithfulness going to the ends of the earth. But during that age, it will also be an age of suffering. In other words, I'm not going to make everything perfect and right and bright during this age. It'll be hard. And it could mean, right? It could mean that, man, the sun might not literally shine. But if you look at your reflection quote that I have in in our bulletins, you'll notice that that language is, is, is not new to the Bible. That if you... You don't have to read it all right now, but that image of the stars not uh, falling and the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, that these are never used literally in Scripture. That if you go back to Isaiah, if you go back to Ezekiel, that when you see that exact language, it's always in the context of judgment upon a nation, In other words, when God wants to say judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, what he does is uses these cosmic resources to say, hey, judgment is coming. And so whether it's the Babylonians or the Medes or whoever it was in the Old Testament, the sun not shining and the stars falling, it conveys his coming judgment. And it could be that that's what Jesus is saying after the temple passes away. There's a new age. But don't be surprised in this new age. Don't forget that it may look good. It may look bad, but his judgment is still a coming. And so we live within that realm. With this sense that one day it will all end. And unlike the temple, and this is why you got to get this. With the temple, Peter says, Jesus, give us signs. And he gave them signs. When it comes to when, he'll go, when he's returning, he don't give no signs. Read it slowly. Look at verses 32, 33, and 35. But concerning that day. When the Son of Man returns or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of God, but only the Father. For you do not know when the time will come. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the morning. You, You get what he's saying? That's where the imagery breaks down. You get signs for the passing away of the temple. You get no sign for the passing away of this world. And you get no signs when you're going to leave this world. That's why Sam Storms, he writes that Jesus gave the disciples signs for the passing away of the temple. No signs are given in Mark that point to the day of his return. More than likely, humanity will be immersed in the routine affairs of life. Like the days of Noah, people will be engaged in normal, routine occupations of farming, of fellowship, of marriage, there will become a widespread indifference and normalcy and the pursuit of materialistic endeavors. His coming will catch many in the middle of their everyday routines. His coming will be the farthest thing from their minds. In other words, what Jesus is saying, when he returns, you won't have time to get ready. You've got to be ready. gotta be ready he will come like a thief in the night or you will be jogging and have a heart attack you do not know when you will die and in Jesus's goodness he says boy or girl or man or child you can't get ready you gotta be ready That's the question that's before us this morning. Not that everything is passing away, but are you ready for the passing away of all things? Is your soul in the hands of Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior and your king? Do you see the indictment from Scripture that all have fallen short of the glory of God? that no one is righteous, Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. No one can live into and up to the standards of God. And God is a consuming fire. God is a just God who will judge all people. And the beauty of the gospel is that God himself has come from the right hand of God. And God himself, through the person of Jesus, has come to live and obey every single thing not just in deed, but in intent, not just in outward actions, but in his disposition of his heart. And this same one went to a cross, not because he was a sinner, but he went to a cross for sinners who deserve to be there. That we who know sin and are acquainted with it on a regular basis might have our sins pardoned by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have you bowed the knee to that Lamb? Have you trusted in Him? Because if you have not trusted in Him by faith, I don't care how woke you are, you are still asleep and you are still under the wrath of God. You won't be able to get ready. You got to be ready. How can you trust Jesus? He says, go to Jerusalem and you tell me if you see a temple there. And you won't. If I told you the temple is passing away and it did, I'm telling you something greater than a temple is passing away and it will, and you see it. The last thing I want us to look at in this passage is What's the posture and the practices of those who are awake? Posture and practices. See, my question is like, Lord, am I awake? How do I know, right? Because you're going to catch me off guard. How how do I know if I'm awake? How do I know that I won't be caught off guard? How do I know that I won't be found sleeping? He's like, I got you. I'm going to put it right here in the Bible. Did you notice three times this idea of the elect come up? It comes up in verses 20 and 22 and 27, right? Now, it's this image that, yes, the world around us is slumbering. The world around us is sleeping. But within that world, God has a people that are his. And though the world around them don't see the judgment, though the world around them don't think about eternity, though the world around him haven't bowed the knee, God has some people on this earth right now who are his chosen people. They're the elect, those plucked out of his wrath, those plucked out of his destruction and who are set in the cross of Christ. Those out there who aren't asleep, who are very much awake. Uh Oh, I got that. Is that better, Jimmy? All right. Sorry about that. The word he uses is that they're awake. While the world is asleep there are some who are awake notice he doesn't say get awake he says stay awake which is important because it's not up for us to awaken ourselves it's like i will awaken you i will open your eyes to me and you will see and you will not slumber and that will be a work of the Holy Spirit who will make dead people alive unto the Lord. And what Jesus is saying, now that I have breathed into you the breath of life and you are a living person, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't buy into the slumber. Stay awake because I have already awakened you. Now, there are two sections in here that are exhortations. You see the exhortations, right? Right. They're right there in verses 5 through 12 and then 33 through 37, which I'm taking to believe verses 5 through 12 were for the disciples as they waited for the fall of the temple. Verses 33 through 37, that's for us as we await the arrival of Jesus. And here's the thing, the postures don't change. Whether you were alive back then and waiting on the temple to fall or we're alive right now waiting on Jesus to return, the MO is the same. Be awake. Be awake. Well, what does it look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like we sit down and try to calculate the precise day when Jesus is returning. We don't write articles on Jesus is going to come back on January the 5th, 2025, right? We're not to be overly preoccupied with nailing down a date that even the Son of Man and the angels don't know that. Only the Father knows that. And so if that's what we think being awake is about, trying to be more precise in the Bible is precise, that's not being awake. Well, what does he call us to do? Give you six things. We worship God consistently, watch for false teachers vigilantly, Endure the fracture of this world patiently, suffer for the gospel readily, teach the gospel faithfully, and trust the Holy Spirit deeply. Those are six postures of people who are truly awake. Now, what do we mean by worship God consistently? There is no temple. And so the million-dollar question to a first-century Jew is where do we meet God? How do we worship? How do we know our sins are atoned for? We don't go to that building in Jerusalem anymore, do we, saints? We come to Jesus. The person who is awake is a worshiper of God. And we come to the new temple that God has built, first in Jesus, but also you and I. We're the new temple being built by the hands of God into this beautiful dwelling place of God. And so I think it's impossible for a person who claims to be awake to the things of the Lord Who does not worship Jesus and distances himself or herself from the church that Jesus himself is building. How do you know if you're awake? You love to sing his praises. His treasure, your treasure is his. You gather with God's people. These are signs of being awake. We watch out for false teachers vigilantly. Jesus says that counterfeits will go out and many of them will go out even to deceive the elect. You can go to any bookstore and find a whole bunch of stuff and it all sounds like really, really spiritual. And it could be that behind it, it's really not of the Lord. It's to lead you and to get your eyes off of the word of God. And so what what, what woke people do in, in light of this passage is we want to know the truth instead of the counterfeit we delight in the truth and so the question is how do we discern the truth from the counterfeit it's not by chasing down the counterfeit it's by becoming so enamored with the truth that everything we hear is measured against it you've heard how the fbi trains its counterfeiters its agents who, who go out there and deal with this They don't train them by giving them the gazillions of fake bills. Study this one, and then study this one, and then study this one, and then study this one. No, what they do is put the real bill in your hand. Smell it, touch it, feel it. Get so familiar with the real thing that when the fake stuff comes, You know it's fake, because you know the real thing. And a guy named Tim Challies, he's a pastor, he wanted to test, because you know pastors, we tell you a whole bunch of stories and we think that all of them are true, and some of them might not be true, but this one is true. He actually went to the Bank of Canada. He actually went. And he asked to meet with a, a, a lady in there. He says, put me through your counterfeiting protocol And she did. And to his surprise, she took him to a room and she did not give him one single counterfeit bill. What she gave him were real bills. And what she told him was their fourfold method, touch it, tilt it, look at it, and then look through it. And if you can touch and you can tilt and you can look at and look through, anytime imposters get in your hand, you know the truth. Is that not a word for us believers? We should not be out here trying to chase down all the false teachers. What we need to know is the true shepherd and the goodness of his truth from this book. And to the degree that we read this and savor this and center our lives around this to that degree alone, because it's some clever jokers out there who will even deceive the elect. And so we come back to this. We endure the fracture of the world patiently. We hear about all the stuff. And Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed. Your father is on the throne. He is sovereign and he is good. Cast your cares upon him. You'll hear about a lot of stuff. But do you know you're safe with him? He will not leave you nor forsake you. Suffer for the gospel readily. Staying awake entails suffering. And it seems like it takes a lifelong to learn this, but we got to get to a place when, where we're peculiar, where we don't fit in, where the world hates us because they hated Jesus first, and we're surprised when they hate us, but Jesus is saying, if they hated you, they'll hate me, so get ready to bear your cross and you follow me. We have to be accustomed to not being liked and not being on the in crowds and being misunderstood and being peculiar. That is a mark of a believer. And he says, we'll teach the gospel faithfully. He tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses. The, The nations will hear the good news. And here's the thing. I don't think he's just talking to them. I think he's talking to us. That if we know this world is passing away and we know what awaits. Why are we silent? Why don't we open our mouths? Why do we not share the faith? They're asleep. They can't see. And one of the means that God uses to bring people from darkness into his light. is you and I. And I've been wrestling with this because I get to preach in front of y'all and it's kind of safe. Y'all don't reject back. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's not like you up here saying no. Right. You just sit here and take it. Right. You just let me talk. It's really safe, man. And one thing that I've kind of committed to this year is spending time with an unbeliever. Once a week. And so far in February, I've done that. Once a week, somebody not going to this church, they're not a believer, and I'll give my time. Or you could Buy shoes for a missionary who loves to run where they are. We did that this year. A missionary we support, we found out that she didn't have shoes. Her running shoes are destroyed. We sent her some shoes. I can't go where she is, but I can make sure that she is recharged where she is to keep proclaiming the good news. We adopted a kid through Compassion International and my wife's going to hate that I'm going to put her on blast. But last night she was writing this little girl. Look, I'm not perfect. And I am messed up in a lot of ways. But sharing the gospel and playing that role in making sure that unbelievers hear the truth. We're called to do that. And we trust the Spirit deeply. You notice what Jesus told them? He says, do not worry about what to say. The Holy Spirit will help you. He'll give you the right words. Isn't that really good of Jesus? It's not like he awakens us and then says, okay, stay awake by yourself. I see you on the other side. He's like, no, I'm the one who opened your eyes and I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to help you so that the one who started this good work, he will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. When I get sleepy on the road, I got a few things I'll do. I take my shoes off and my socks off. Something about letting my feet hit touch like the pedal, right? I go get sunflower seeds and I hate sunflower seeds. I don't eat sunflower seeds, right? I just gotta get them. If I got a long drive, I'll get them. I open the sunroof, let all the windows down. I'll call somebody. But when I'm really sleepy, I give me a five hour energy and I can take it to the dome. Like if if I just like I'm really sleepy, I'll drink it all right then. And if I'm a little bit sleepy, Then I get a little bottle of water, and I pour the whole five-hour energy inside the the water. I shake it up, and I kind of sip on it. And something about those vitamins, right, when it, I I guess it's healthy, but it just kind of hits me. (laughs) It it ain't healthy. I see some of y'all shaking your head. (laughs) But I'm awake. I'm alert. You know what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit? You and I are going to get sleepy. And the Holy Spirit is there. All right, you're getting to sleep. Wake up. Your eyes are closing. Wake up. Isn't that good news? And here's the even better news. We don't always have to live like this. Did you catch verse 27? It says that when Jesus comes back, He will send his angels to gather his elect and we will be taken to be with him and we will see the passing away of this world and the judgment of god in the rearview mirror and that he will bring us to be with him forever this momentary suffering this momentary hardship these things are passing away and God is cutting a course where we will enter into his joy forever. And that is good news. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We ask that you would add your blessing to your word. Do this for the sake of Christ. Amen.